My name is Dane Wilburn. I'm a woman, a witch, a wife, a moth hole, a singer, an act painter, a writer, a lover, a fighter, a student, a chef, a fur baby parent, a mystic, and several things that are too impolite to mention in mixed company. Welcome to Dame's Eclectic Brain. Welcome to Dame's Eclectic Brain, where I talk to people you may or may not know about things you may or may not care about, but you definitely want to hear about. Today's conversation is with Shannon Kaysen. Shannon is my friend, but also my boss. And when he told me about how to do this opening, he gave me all kinds of directions that weren't helpful. So I'm going to just say what I got to say. We have known of each other a lot longer than we known each other and what I when we actually first met the first thing I said was yeah these people kept saying I had to meet you he said yeah they said the same thing to me about you and I told them well I'll get to it when I get to it and I just want to say that that's Detroit all day long you cannot be impressed by other people you're not interested in other people but this show is going to try to break some of that up so he and I are going to talk a little bit about all kinds of things, storytelling, possibly why he keeps shaving his head. Um, we may or may not talk about mic etiquette, but we'll get into all of that later. So take a listen. Hope you enjoy it as much as I do. And thanks for listening to Dame's Eclectic Brain. A lawful Grand Slam winner, a singer, a songwriter, an actress, a violinist, a marketing director for a soap company, a painter, a writer, a lover, a fighter. So... Storytelling means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but what does it mean to you? Like, how do you define storytelling? Like, how do you think about it? How do you, how do you approach it? Storytelling, for me, I don't know. I remember, like, my mom taking me to the library when I was young and reading those stories, and then I remember going. Um, in salons, my dad was a salesman. He used to sell. We used to sell stuff in the salons in Detroit, and uh, he would always be telling stories, like always, you know, telling about what happened to such and such this person, you know. So the mixture of those two things, like the books, and mm-hmm. then that natural, just talking vibe, is how I. How I like storytelling, but stories for me doesn't have to be like beginning, middle, and end. Story can be character, you know, just the yeah. person. Like my dad was a character, and when he's telling these, these, it don't matter if it's a story, it may be an antidote, but it's a story to me because his character is so strong, you know. So, so that's that's storytelling to me. I don't know if that's the perfect answer, but but that's 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 my you know that's what about you? Like, what do you think about storytelling? But I had, yeah, because I had the same kind of startup. It was, you know, my mother worked at a rec center. And so the library, the librarian and library were right next to her office. So for me, it was just books. And then I come from a long people, see, people call it storytelling. And now it's got podcasts and everybody got some stuff to say. <laughs> when I was in Georgia, it was called telling lies. And so you would just sit around and talk shit. Like you were doing something. Maybe you were, we would do these pig roasts, right? So you do this. You got to takes two days to cook a hog, right? A oh whole wow! Hog. Like it takes a day to cook a whole hog. It takes it takes it takes like take a day. A couple yeah, of, okay. it, yeah. It takes a minute because you you have to keep turning. You got to check it. It's Man, a I slow it's cook big, yeah. and it's a big old piece of meat. You can't just put it on an hour later. You got. I mean, people die. <laughs> you don't cook pig all the way through. 
So what happened is there's this whole building of the fire pit, right? So you got to build where you're going to do the barbecuing, right? And so that's one. That's, and my granddaddy was a contractor, so that's one whole thing. And then there's this whole overnight thing that happens where the, where you start cooking that hog maybe noon the day before, and it'll be ready in time for the barbecue at 3 o'clock the next day. But you got to be out there with it all night. So that's a lot of beer and just running your mouth because it's not like you got tv out there you in the back of the backyard so you are just entertaining each other so that's how i started with storytelling it was always because my family had this thing about not only with it so you tell so many stories about the people you know Uh right and then there'd be like little jokes that you drop in like you know your uncle peter could steal the flour out of cake you know so that's how like that was like a peter story always stole always started with your uncle peter could steal the wet out of water and Uh then it'd be this whole story about him taking something yeah yeah and then as you go on at the night you run out of the family story so then you'd have to tell the story about somebody that they don't know yeah so then there was always this character set up right so it's a certain thing like that like the antidotes like the character. so they'd have to build this guy and then once they build him, you could see him doing stuff. Now, would you tell stories in that around the pit? Now, okay, so that's a man's world. Listening? That's okay, a man's yeah, world. Okay, they'd be so, real. Yeah. But but my mama could get down there because my mama was just the kind of person where you didn't tell her no because it was way more complicated to tell her no than to just let her be. <laughs> so the other women just wouldn't even go down there. My mama didn't give a damn. She'd show up with a couple six-packs and uh-huh. pull up a stump and sit down <laughs> and start talking shit with everybody else. Yeah, yeah. But what I used to do was the front porch, because that's back when Georgia in, in is like 100 degrees. The so kids sit on the front porch. Kid, well, the kids and the women. Uh-huh. But the kids have to go to bed. When it gets dark, but that's the only time Georgia is cool. Mm-hmm. The only time the temperature gets great is after 10 o'clock at night. So the only way to pull that off was to be a storyteller and be entertaining enough for the adults to say, okay, you can stay. Like, we don't have to put you in the house. She's entertaining enough. Leave her alone. But having said that, I don't know any people in the family. So I had to build characters. So I got that from listening to the guys. Yeah. down by the port yeah. but yeah, yeah i agree but with see you. those the best to me and that's why i connected with your stories when we uh when we eventually met you know Ooh, they was worrying us about <laughs> but that, i was but yeah. like i was like i can connect with it because they were they felt like practice story like you knew your story right but you use like some improvisation in it, and you 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 play off the audience a little bit. As far as the storytelling we do on stage, right? And it, because I I notice it's a lot of storytelling that's well rehearsed and practiced, and mine's is well rehearsed and practiced. But I do think of like the improvis improv I can't say the word improvisation exactly. I <laughs> I try to add that to it so I can react, and it may feel right. like like I hadn't practiced the story, but I wanted to. feel feel like a little bit of looseness in it you know that's right because that's what i you nobody would sit there if y'all sitting at the pig roast and somebody come up with some super organized story nobody's going to listen well, everybody's going to be like what the and you can't get all the way through it either <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah. everybody's got something to say they gonna jump in. right oh you know i was down there with skeet and me and skeet went to 
the Circle K up there on Pinona. Now, wait a minute. Is that the one near Krispy Kreme or is that the one near Captain D's? Because that one near Captain D's, uh-huh. that girl who worked back there, like you can't, you could never do an organized oh, story because people- work at Captain Right, because it yeah. always, it'll split off. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you had to have a certain amount of improvisation and then you had to have the kind of brain that could hold your spot. Yeah. Cause you oh, had you, to, cause you had to I loop hold back. A spot. You well, you had to, you had to be able when, the, when he finally stopped talking about the girl that worked at Circle K, and uh-huh. your cousin stopped telling him that y'all are actually related, because that was always how the story went. Because <laughs> Say, we hey, were everywhere. Watch your Georgia. eyes, y'all. Right. Actually, that's your right. Cousin. You know, that's your cousin, <laughs> sister's cousin, uncle. You know, daughter's child, whatever. You all related, but you had to be able to suit as that, cause your your time was the drop your time was a sip of beer that's how much time you had to get back to get that stage back that's the same thing that happened on the porch it was a sip of tea because somebody was talking somebody else was talking somebody else was talking and at some point everybody's gonna stop and take a sip of tea and then you better grab that if you don't grab that stage you'll never get it back i could never grab it like i was never grab the stage. I was always a background person and I still am to a certain degree you know I have a the podcast now that I do homemade stories and and then I had another one the trouble but I don't um, I think that's that's how I get listened to you know because even with my boys and my friends and my dad calls me now he ain't listened to one of my we talk for two hours he ain't listened to one of my stories nope (laughs) my job (laughs) is to accentuate his story right exactly <laughs> that's basically and that's how i was hanging with my uncle and i was just watching how it is my stories wasn't you know on the plate <laughs> let's talk about his stories right and we'll i I'll, I'll, I'll jump in every now and again and say yeah you told me that one before <laughs> right if, if you can get in long enough to yeah, say yeah, you told yeah, me that yeah. one before you told me you told me you used to do this you know yeah. i'm more of that person right you and know. you and i tell you something else that makes you a great person is that laugh because uh-huh, that uh-huh. if you're a storyteller that's what you want that's what you're going for you're going for the paying attention you're going for the laugh you're going for the payoff that's what storytellers do at some point there's a payoff to this and you that laugh is I call you too, just to say something, to hear that laugh, and then I'm like, "All right, I must have done something right," and then I can get on with my day. Now, how how uh, how do you like when you how do you come about like how do you find stories like how do you come about? I think there's two kinds of storytellers in the world. Really, mm-hmm. I think there are people who have an amazing story to tell, like you climbed. Everest with a goat on your back or something like that's an amazing story or that one dude who turned a bathtub into a boat and sailed across the English Channel yeah, that's, like an I, excellent story. that's an excellent story it, that it does not matter who that dude is yeah that's an excellent story yeah. yeah but then there are other people who I think could make a story out of anything and I probably fall into that category mm-hmm. where I can turn going to buy biscuits into an epic yeah yeah. and i just and it won't be a lie but and i also want to say this shout out to stephen king i read a lot of stephen king when i was young that's a great point and stephen king will spend three three pages describing a tire you know so it 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 when you have that capacity to get into the nuance of simple things, then you can turn anything into a story. Because Stephen King could turn anything into a story. But I, I, that's one of the points I get to try to tell 
with young or not young, but just storytellers who will be asking me questions or something or ask me. And I'll say uh, uh, that too, like read, read a lot. Because reading, like you say, Stephen King, and I, re- I read a lot of Elmore Leonard, Walter Mosley, uh, stuff like that as far as crime fiction stuff. And I love books. It's always stories within the story, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you find those stories within the story. If you can if you can play off of that a little bit and make and build, you know, just like little worlds within the whole story that you're telling and the person be like, dang, I want to hear more about the, the cashier at the, at the local corner store, you know, because right. you made right. her a story yeah. off of just a few sentences. I notice authors do that and I'm always intrigued. I'll stop, I'll close a book sometimes and just think about that person that they, like you say, Stephen King would take three pages and talk about, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll sit there and close the book and be like, man, I wonder what it is like to be a a, a, a rowboat, you know, right. no, it's like, <laughs> a steamboat uh, operator or whatever, you know. It's be like, like Christine. I mean, he made a car, a character, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. The Shining, that hotel is a character. Anytime I go see a big old hotel, some gigantic historic place, yeah, that's my first, my first clickback is going to be to Stephen King yeah. and The Shining. And I think that's the power of storytelling where people take it off the page and drop it into the lexicon, drop it into the real world. Yeah. And there are certain things because of him. If you're an avid reader of the man, there's certain things that you're going to see and you will automatically connect something he said. For instance, he's got this thing called The Mist, right? It's a story about The Mist. And in The Mist. I like that movie. I watched the movie. <laughs> right. There's all the stuff in The Mist, right? To this day, I freak out going into a grocery store. That's a Stephen King problem. Whenever <laughs> I see all those glass windows, I'm like, I got to get out of here before The Mist comes. Like, uh-huh. I'm a fast grocery shopper right now uh-huh. because of The Mist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. That's cool. So what is your, I know what my deal is with. Detroit and my connection. So what is yours? Like, what is it about the town? What is it about the city that just. Well, I grew up, I grew up West side. I mean, West side, Southwest side and E-Course. Those mm-hmm. are my, those are my, those are my areas. And, and coming up, like I had a dad who was everywhere. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. He was kind of a cool dude. As far as in the city, he used to do the playboy clubs and stuff like that. <laughs> so just being around him, you would see a lot of the city because he would, you know, take me in his Cadillac and drive around town. And there would be so many different characters that you meet, like Paul, who uh, who wore like a nanny goat all the time. He had the <laughs> nanny goat uh, mink coat or whatever. You know, yeah, he'd wear I that to nanny the house goat in a long time. All the time. Like he yeah. always had the coat on and the shade. He looked like Prince. Yep. And he'd play it off, act like with the women that he was Prince or something. You right. know, like they Prince, they Prince dreams or something. So, so then he... You know, so just being around that was like uh, total Detroit to me, and then grew up west side. I mean, a uh, southwest side in Ecorse, and that's where I kind of became my own when my when my parents broke up. But uh, but Detroit for me was always the creativity we had because I was in the hip hop community back then mm-hmm. when we coming up. And just the creativity and everybody pushing themselves. And I used to read a lot when mm-hmm. I was being, uh, you know, in the teenage years, read a lot. 
for myself, you know, not right. a whole lot, but I'll read probably three books a year and that would be okay. like, I read a lot. But, you know, you get what yeah. I'm saying? Amongst all my other friends, <laughs> yeah. I read a lot, well, you know. And my friends too. Yeah, if you read three books a year, you, you was a scholar. Three books a year. Three books, I'm, what you doing? How you, you know, get that kind of time? People read yeah. that in a week, you know, right. but... uh <laughs> But for me, that was a lot. So I was like, man, I want to write one day. I want to do something with, mm-hmm. besides hip-hop, you know. And I try to bring that. I'm going to be honest, even in hip-hop. Like, I, I, I read articles or interviews, like people like Nas and Rakim, who were, like, excellent lyricists. Rakim, yes. They were reading, and they were studying other music and other things. And that's that's that was um, – so for me, Detroit was – was like creativity, but then I was using my, you know, some of the other stuff to bring to the creativity that I had amongst my friends, you know. I don't know, um, like when you in Detroit, were you, were you ever in any, any other commu- creative communities or anything like that? Well, I was. Mine was hip hop, but it was a whole bunch of creative communities. But I didn't do, it was weird because I, so I was in Waldorf school and it was so kind of insular that's just the way waldorf is um i hope that picked up on the tape um i just really do i'm sure it did i just hope it does and i hope you don't edit it out Um, (laughs) so uh waldorf was so insular that you just didn't really branch out, but Waldorf. I had to, What's Waldorf? Because so, you say that so much, and I'd I be like, I don't even know what the fuck she's okay, talking about. Okay, so Waldorf, <laughs> Detroit. Okay, so Rudolf Steiner did this whole thing with uh, existentialism and education, right? So the the he started these schools that are supposed to be for German workers, and the whole concept is really convoluted and complicated but i'm gonna break it down for you basically it's private school there's no electronics and i as a student perceived it as really trying to keep kids kids where they're supposed to be until they're not supposed to be there anymore so you moved at your own pace but we were like we were talking about fairies being in the gardens and stuff when i was in uh, kindergarten like nobody was trying to teach you math in kindergarten mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. kindergarten your job was to paint eat lunch and nap which i think <laughs> which is supposed to be that's what yeah. you're supposed to do in kindergarten and when we got to the first grade there was some education pieces but everybody was really about just these are the years where you develop and if i give you something to interact with if i interest you in an idea if i bring you a concept as a child your natural curiosity will teach you how to learn something and that to me is the difference between waldorf school and probably any other education out there except for like roper or friends is that you don't learn the stuff they teach you you learn how to learn which means you can learn anything how did your mom or dad end up sending you to... So my mother was a physical education major uh, Fort Valley State University, Fort Valley, Georgia, historically black college. Because I went to the school that was yeah. closest to my house. Well, <laughs> well my mother was Y'all took some thought into this school. Yeah, well, my mama wasn't interested in the schools that were closest to our house. Um, so she was looking for a place for me to go, and she didn't want me... Unfortunately, she didn't want me to Detroit Public Schools. And and I think I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to postulate on that for a second, so forgive me. But my mother came out of the segregated South, and the segregated South is terrible and terrifying and horrifying and ridiculous, except for one factor. The schools are excellent because the all-black schools felt that those students had to exceed Mm. whatever education milestone was there simply to compete 
with the white kids. Mm. So my mother at Fort Valley, the Ballard Hudson High School, it was Ballard Hudson <laughs> High School in Macon, Georgia, studied Macbeth. Awesome. My mother studied Shakespeare in high school yeah. because her English teacher was like, you got to be twice as good as white people for them to think you're equal. And they'll never think you're equal. You just got to be twice as good. Yeah, yeah. You got to be twice as good to just pass through. And when we started talking about the integration of schools, people stopped talking about education. It became this whole thing about we need to make sure that your kids are this color and that color and they're hanging together. And people figured, well, if I put my black kids in an excellent white school, they'll get an excellent education. When those teachers, basically, when those black kids showed up, just stopped teaching. So everybody lost. Mm. Like there was no... We don't do cultural competency in this country. What we do is just tell you the laws change and just make you go. But in the 50s, no one set those white teachers down and said, I know they've been telling you for 400 years that these folks are inferior. They're Mm -hmm. not. So Mm -hmm. I need you to not treat them as inferior. And And let's keep going. And then the people moved from whatever neighborhood and And the schools moved out. You're Pretty still much segregated. segregated schools, yeah. My, yeah. But but you're a segregated school without the excellence. Yeah, without the excellence. Without yeah. the excellence, yeah. and that's what my mother got saw. Beautiful schools in Detroit. Yeah. Beautiful. You know they were great schools. At, at, Absolutely. At yeah. But my mother didn't see that and mm-hmm. didn't think that that was where I want I should be. And one of the things Waldorf asks is: Is your kid uh, are they funny? Do they have an adult sense of humor? Are they outside <laughs> of the way other kids work? Do they? Do they interact with the world differently? And as my mother started to check that stuff off, she was like, okay, this is where Damien should be going. And mm. that's that, and she was a teacher. So she was investigating how they taught oh. kids, how they interacted with kids. She was looking at it as a so teacher looking for a place to put. She had a strong value on yeah. education. I got you. Super strong. Yeah, yeah. That's all right. Because always, you always say Wardorf, and I'm always like, Am I just supposed to know what that is? <laughs> I do. Throw, I throw it out there real casual because a lot I of want everybody. Do, you know, no, they I'm don't. They really don't. They don't. I just want them. I want them to know about it because I am who I am because of that school. Like there's, I had great parents. I had great grandparents. I had wonderful people in my life. I was lucky as hell. And right now we like to use the term privilege. We like to use the term um that you've got this, you know, you you got this upper hand. And I did. I had an upper hand for real. But that school is what made me a world citizen. That school is the reason why. And I'll tell people this. I say the reason if I'm good at anything at all, it's because I'm a local anywhere. Hmm. And being a local anywhere is this thing where you can simply be with people and recognize where they are without having to imprint your values on them and without having to have their values imprinted on you. You can simply accept them right where they're at and be with them where they're at and then move on when you need to move on. And that is a Waldorf skill that I learned going to school with a bunch of different people from a bunch of different places. Now that, that's a that's a dope skill to learn at a young age because yes. it took me probably to my 30s to be. You you get what I'm yeah. saying? I'm gonna be real with you because I wasn't comfortable with everybody, you know. Right. So it's just like uh, I be thinking I have to change something to be more accepted. So I'm I'm with the uh, not nothing matter with increasing your vocabulary, but I'm no. with the vocabulary word of the day. I'm trying to learn so I can talk like these other people who are in work, you know, because right. they seem to be, you know. So it's, so it's just like certain things. That you, but early on, if you just, 
are comfortable within yourself and able to like navigate in, 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 in multiple different circumstances, which I think I was even more so than a lot of my other peers and friends. But at the same time, it was in my mind, you know, right. when I, when I, when I do certain things, you know, so, uh, but now, you know, I, I'm, you put me anywhere. I'm going to be whoever I am and you deal with it. <laughs> right. And, but I, I, and I'm going to throw that out yeah. for what you just said about the hip hop community. I didn't listen to hip hop. I did, but I didn't. I think yeah. there was a place where when I was younger, it was coming up. Like when we were coming up, there was this place where hip hop was. Nobody was, you know, you, you should not listen to this music because it's not really music. There was this whole fight. You know, I've been through three great musical fights uh-huh. in my life. Uh-huh. Like disco being dead. Like disco being an excellent source of music. Uh-huh. That was a fight. Then when everybody was like, disco's dead. Where you were well, I'm sorry, Donna Summer to the grave. Like I, I like disco. I <laughs> you like disco. disco you, you but, okay? You on disco side? I but get you. but I liked disco for the same reason that eventually the Rolling Stones started to like it. For the same reason that Rod Stewart started to like it. For the same reason that a lot of because I'm and I also want to throw this out there: if you don't have disco, you don't get hip hop. Because those guys, like together. if you go all yeah. the way way back, those guys are coming out of disco. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm going to say that and then I'm going to move on. I'm, 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 I'm going to get a letter about that, I hope. So, okay. Dame Will at uh, Dame's Eclectic Brain. Some of uh, some, <laughs> somebody some, some hip hop. Some hip hop. But my point is, yeah. some of that stuff that started off in the beginning that was super flashy is going to come out of disco. Uh-huh. And what happened was, you get the production value. Because when you go back into the 60s and stuff like that, and even in the 70s, in the early 70s, you're getting guys who are walking into a room, they're putting it on wax, and then you're leaving. So, this whole. Like, I mean, the Beatles were the first ones, I think, to really start doing heavy production. Like, we're going to run this four track and then drop that as one track on a channel and then run another four track. I mean, that's how they did Sgt. Pepper. Sgt. Mm-hmm. Pepper was a series of four tracks that they would make into one track and then drop it yeah. on the four track and play it as they recorded the next tracks and then drop it and yeah. drop it. But if you take out that, the thing that made me like disco was a production value. It was a high quality production but value. But I say to you, like, you were getting groomed differently because from the standpoint of sometimes hip-hop can be uh isolated it can be uh you you talk about segregate it can be it's isolated so Mm -hmm. i remember growing up with my friends we didn't listen i mean we would listen to jazz because it would we would use that to make the beats right and we would listen to soul because they would use that to make the beats but you you can get kind of where certain music Oh man, that's booty music, or that's and eh, turn that off. You know, right. you kind of like, but to sit and listen to a Beatles album, it may be a lot of growth that happened to you from doing that. And you'll find some of the best producers, like out of Detroit, they weren't listening to what everybody else was listening to. Like like Jay Dilla, he he was listening to the Beatles and right. all kind of different stuff. And right. when you hear his music, you be like. Dang, this is it's different. It's is you know it's hip hop, but it's got something different to it, you know. And I, I I even use that with storytelling. I try to like I listen to storytellers, but I don't really, you know, I try to listen to something else or read literature, listen to comedians, listen to pastors. I try to right. learn oh. from all that, yeah, to bring that to to storytelling because I noticed like that's what the best producers did in hip hop. They'll listen to they wouldn't listen to hip hop. Right. You would go recreate the same sound, you know, 
then listen to something different. You know, and you did that automatically. You would listen to all kinds of music. Well, I was a musician. I, yeah. I went, you know, I was a violinist, so I had to listen to uh, classical music all the time because I was doing the Suzuki method of violin, which is you learn how to read and learn how to listen to it at the same time. So it's sort of like doing a book on tape. So I'm, I, the book on tape is going to play and you're going to follow along with the book. That's how you learn how to read. Mm -hmm. So that's the way they did with music. So here's the music in front of you. Here's a recording of somebody playing the music. Listen to them and watch the notes move. And now you know what that means. So I know what this means, I know how to count it, whatever. So I had to, I was listening to that. But then my parents were also listening to, my mother was all about um, the modern jazz quartet and uh, listening, she Milk listened Jackson, to jazz. See, she yeah. listened to uh, a lot of stuff, a lot of blues. And my dad listened to blues and then both of them came out of the South. So where everybody in Detroit was listening to Motown, we were listening to Stax records. Yeah. So I was listening to a lot of Isaac Hayes. I was listening to a lot of the Barquets, the Marquis. Uh, Booker T and the MG. So that's sort of what I grew up with. And then when disco came in, my dad, for all of his militant blackness, decided that his favorite band on earth was KC and the Sunshine Your Band. Your dad was listening my to disco? My dad was killing <laughs> my dad. Was he wearing some bell bottoms with, uh, I got a with, picture. with glitter on them? I got, a, <laughs> I got a picture of my father in a powder blue tuxedo with navy blue velvet trim it's overwhelming to the senses, well, but that was him it. going out. But he, but my, I think I lucked <laughs> out because my parents actually liked everything. And the segregated South, that thing about the South was your black radio station might not have that much power. It might only get to you. So my dad, my mother and father grew up listening to country music. Yeah. They liked country too. Like my, my mom and dad, that's all you could get on the radio. So my mm -hmm. mom and dad were like Johnny Cash fans. You know, my mom and dad liked, um, Mel Tillis and um, my dad my dad's thing with um, Conway Twitty was creepy I mm -hmm. think he liked his hair I don't know yeah. what's going on yeah. but like so my I have this whole like my father used to watch the Grand Old Opry and yeah. Hee Haw yeah. so I've got Grand Old Opry and Hee Haw and the Modern Jazz Quartet and, yeah. and Donna so Summer and all of that yeah. just came with it. and then when the 80s hit I started listening to New Wave Mm -hmm. And I started listening to, you know, Boy George and all the rest of this. So I have always listened to everything. That's yeah. just the way it was. But that you were talking about listening to storytellers. I listen to slam poets. Oh, really? It's that okay. same thing. I learned a lot from poets. poets. I learned a lot because I, I worked with uh, Snap. And the first time I did a Snap show, you know, because I had done only the moth up till Snap. Right. And so the moth is like, you know, you practice and you go, you know, you do a lot of stuff. And then uh, Snap, it was all these poets and they were dancing and jumping around. I'm like, I'm just going to hold a mic, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But I was watching and I'm competitive because, you know, You're Detroit. Detroit. We, we ain't going to lose, you know no. what I'm saying? <laughs> no. We ain't going to be at the bottom of the heap, no. you know. So it's just like. All right, yeah, I can dance. I'm gonna do something too, there, you know. So when, but I learned a lot from just, just from the first few shows with Snap watching, watching poets because it was Josh Healy, um, uh, Jamie, Jamie DeWolf, who was an amazing poet, you know, uh, Joyce Lee. So, but you, you, you learned a lot from poets as well, huh? I got a chance to do a. Uh this uh, thing down in Georgia, the place is called Serenby and they do artists and residencies. And 
whatnot. And they called me when I didn't think I was an artist, when I was still working a job every day, uh-huh. I got recommended to go be an artist in resident for two weeks. Oh, wow. okay. And I was like, I don't have an art. So what are we sending me for? And they were like, well, you're a storyteller and we count that as an art. Uh-huh. And I was like, what? So I, so I went down there for two weeks and basically freaked out because I thought the clowns in the there were clowns in the woods that were going to cut my throat because it was sort of in the middle of nowhere. It, it felt clowns? like it was in the middle of nowhere. There mm-hmm. were no clowns. But when you get out in the woods by yourself, like you grow up in Detroit, there's always a noise, there's always a person, there's always a light. When I was at this place in Georgia, there were no people, there was no lights. Mm-hmm. So I kept thinking at some point... I didn't see a clown. But clowns are what I think of when I get scared. Let me continue, please. Um, and I ended up going back. And I'm actually going back. And I'm going again in September. But, oh, that's um, cool. This will be my third year spending some portion of the year with these guys. But I met some slam poets and some spoken word folks. And got, and getting a chance to listen to them changed how I do what I do. Yeah. So I think that's, that's the influence. You just have to take your influences from everywhere you are. What caught you from there, from listening to him? It was sort of, at least in, at least what I've seen so much of slam poetry, yeah. there's the that level of like like back in the day with the beat poets where you say something deep and people will snap because mm-hmm. you just say something deep. But there's this almost call and response interaction that happens with the audience. They're used to their audiences being more interactive and drawing from them in interaction. Yeah. And in storytelling, that's not... Yeah. The way that works, you really, you know, the moth is based on silence mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. You get up, you tell your story. If they laugh, that's great. If they don't, that's fine. But you don't do these things to elicit a reaction in the audience. Mm-hmm. You are simply, you're there and they're there. And then you both have this experience together. Yeah. And I am far more, I think, like poet, like slam poets, spoken word poets, spoken word artists rappers in the sense that I am trying to make that connection with you and not just us having a collective experience together, yeah. but us actually experiencing this moment together. Yeah. Yeah. You see, yeah, it's I different. Mean, yeah. Yeah. I, like, it's different. And I noticed that with your stories, they are yeah. different. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, it'd be like, man, something was different because you can fall into like a, a pattern, you mm-hmm. know, and I and I and I I'm against I'm against the pattern in a sense, but at the I, I understand certain patterns are needed, but at the same time I want to uh, I I think you put it perfectly from my standpoint too. I want a reaction, not necessarily you ain't got to laugh or you ain't got to do nothing, no. but it's more of a you know a back and forth. You right. know I want to feel a little bit, and I I like to feel the audience a little bit to know which direction I want to go with this. You right. know, if I want to take it down this road or if I want to go down this road, or if I want to play with you right here or it, but you'll find that like in poetry or, or some of the, uh, some other arts. And, but that's one of the things like learning from multiple sources and kind of bring, cause I, I look at pastors. I oh, watch yeah. a pastor on stage and they, I mean on the pulpit and they're, and they're telling their, their story and they might, in the middle of their story, say, "I want y'all, Charles, Charles uh, Anthony, stand up." He going to school at Michigan State University. Right. You guys, let's, you know, they, yeah. he might do that in the middle of something, mm-hmm. and I like that. You know, I like that whole essence as well. So I, 
you know, I grew up going to church or I went to church a lot. So you'll find you do a little bit of that in my stories, you know, just change the subject and then go back to the story, you know. Well, it's so, like if you look at Steve Harvey as a stand up comedian. Yeah, yeah. If you go back to some of his real early stuff, he's preaching. Yeah, he's yeah, he, he he's got the cadence. He's <laughs> he got the preacher. suits. He's a preacher. <laughs> and if you look at him and say, "Okay, you a preacher," it clarifies every like you can you can almost catch his cadence and dance. He's he's dancing words and pictures and stuff because that's what preachers do. Yeah. Because when you do religion, anytime that you're up in a pulpit or something and you're doing religion, you're a preacher, you're a pastor, even if you're coming out of Catholics, even if you're coming out of Church of England or whatever, you have always, the tradition is talking to people who didn't read the book you're talking about. <laughs> so you are automatically a storyteller. You know most people ain't read the Nobody book. Nobody have a, well, there's this time where people <laughs> couldn't read. People did. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, you got this yeah. whole span where people couldn't read. Uh-huh. Now you got this whole span where people don't. You know, yeah, you couldn't yeah, read yeah. the Bible. Now they just don't read it. Yeah, you just so yeah, yeah. that translation of the word is now the preacher's responsibility. And if he's a good preacher, mm-hmm. and there, are, there ain't a lot of them left, but if he's a good preacher, mm-hmm. his his ability to get that information to you is about connecting himself to it. Yeah. So he's not telling you the story of Jonah and the whale. Uh-huh. He's telling you the story about him and his whales, and then he'll pick up that Bible verse yeah, yeah. and drop it in there, and yeah. you're like, "Oh, we still That's going through it." And people then, always say, uh, "Pastor said, Pastor, pastor said, said, Pastor said," because they yep. ain't read themselves, ain't but read at it. the same time, they just following the story of the pastor. But yeah. that's what he right. is. So every Sunday morning, this guy's gonna get up and tell you a story. Mm-hmm. And if you go to Baptist church, you grew up at Baptist church, especially in the South. You every Sunday morning, you had a story, and then yeah. I went to a school, and that's how they taught you was through stories. Yeah. So I've been listening to stories, or been a storyteller, literally since jump. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what are we gonna do with Dame's eclectic brain? We're gonna get other people's stories out there. We're gonna get uh, the people we talk to, folks we run into. I'm gonna try to show Detroit because Detroit is as much in my blood as Waldorf, as Macon, Georgia. These are the things that define me. If you Mm -hmm. say, what are the three things that make you up? It's going to be Macon, Georgia, Detroit, Michigan, and the Waldorf School. (laughs) If you take whatever those three things in a sec, Uh that's who I am. And so, you know, we're going to try to introduce people to Better Made Chips and and Fago Pop and and Coney Dogs with Extra Onions. Uh And we're going to try to really get anybody who's listening to sort of hang out with how my brain works and hopefully tap into how their brain works too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the whole goal, man. That's the job. Eclectic, as defined by Webster's Dictionary, is deriving ideas, style, or taste from a broad and diverse range of sources. Well, that's my first show. Sounds good to me. I like talking to Shannon, even though he gets on my nerves. Um, This is sort of how this thing is going to go, where I talk to people, and then I talk, and then they talk. And it's going to be kind of like an interview show, but maybe not. So you need to keep tuning in so that you know what's happening. Thank you for listening to Dame's Eclectic Brain. And also, if you can subscribe to the show and like go to where you listen to podcasts and rate it. That really does help because I am legit trying to conquer the world and I can't do that if y'all don't help me. Now, I promise you this. I'll be a great leader and everybody will get some sort of pudding. That's all I got. 
Thank you for listening to Dame's Eclectic Brain. I love you. And remember, peace sells, but who's buying? Mm, mm, mm. Now that's homemade.